You're listening to episode 164 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? We have Sarah Dessen, one of your most requested guests on the show today. If you'd love to hear the full, uncut version of our conversation, it's available for patrons signed up for our early access tier over on our Patreon page. For the month of June, there will be early access to future upcoming podcast episodes featuring author Rachel Hawkins and New Leaf literary agent J.L. Sturmer. If you'd love to support our show and receive these awesome benefits, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to become a patron. Before we jump right into Sarah's episode, I want to thank Four Sigmatic for supporting our show and the work that we do that has allowed us to be the go-to community for storytellers. Four Sigmatic is a superfood company whose mission is to take over the world with their delicious coffees and teas that are all made with functional mushrooms and adaptogens. I'm going to get into all the details about what that means at the end of the show, so be sure to hang around with me to hear more about these guys. Our storytellers receive a special 15% off, so be sure to head over to forsigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea, and that's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash 88 cups of tea, or you can use our exclusive discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. I want to highlight one of our listeners who took the time to write a very thoughtful review for us on Apple Podcasts. This storyteller's username is Simone's Music, and they wrote, If you're a writer, you really need to subscribe to this wonderful podcast. The interviews are engaging and encouraging. Yin is a phenomenal host, and her guests are super generous with resources and tips for writers. The questions from the community are also helpful. I've listened to multiple episodes in a row because each one is unique and gives fresh insights. Thank you so much for your sweet review, Simone's Music. It put a huge smile on my face. And I'm so glad the questions from our community has been so helpful for you. If you're not already in the group, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea, and we would be so happy for you to join us. Thank you again for listening to our show. All right, listeners, if you haven't subscribed to our show yet or left a review like Simone's Music, I do have a super quick favor to ask. I would be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you have some time, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners and every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea to help our community grow. So thank you Thank you so much in advance. Now on to today's guest, Sarah Dessen. Sarah is the number one New York Times bestselling author of over a dozen novels for teens, which have received numerous awards and rave reviews. Her books have been published in over 30 countries and have sold millions of copies worldwide. She's the recipient of the 2017 Margaret A. Edwards Award from the American Library Association for Outstanding Contribution to Young Adult Literature for her novels like Keeping the Moon, Dreamland, This Lullaby, The Truth About Forever, Just Listen, Along for the Ride, What Happened to Goodbye, 
and many more. In our conversation today, we dive into how Sarah fell in love with storytelling and how her writing has evolved throughout her entire career. We discuss what it's like to write for yourself versus the pressure of writing what others want you to write and how her mother-daughter relationships in her books are inspired by her relationship with her own mother and daughter. We talk about embracing both the good and bad parts of ourselves in our writing in order to begin healing and the importance of seeking help when we need it. She talks all about her newly released novel, The Rest of the Story, and shares a behind-the-scenes look into the writing and publishing process. Sarah walks us through her experience of changing publishers after a really long time and shares tips on crafting romantic arcs, talks balancing finances and your creative pursuits, how to break the spell of writer's block, and so much more. Sarah created an exclusive writing prompt just for our storytellers that focuses on the small details to strengthen your writing. So be sure to head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Sarah dash Destin to download the bonus content. Okay, I have a feeling you're going to really love this episode. So let's jump right in. Hey, everybody. Oh my gosh. We have one of your most requested authors On the podcast today, we have Sarah Dessen, who Los Angeles Times calls a rock star in young adult fiction. Sarah, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Why don't we kick it off? And I usually love to ask how you first fell in love with storytelling. Oh, well, I was a big reader as a kid. And my mom took us to the library every weekend. And I would check out a big stack of books or we went to bookstores and everything. So I always loved to read and to make up stories. And often was the case was that a story would end or a book would end and I wouldn't want it to end. So I would like write more of it. (laughs) That's kind of how it started. (laughs) I never want books to end. That's kind of, except for my own books. I'm always ready for those to end. (laughs) It's a different, totally different experience. But I think I always liked storytelling, but it wasn't until I got to college that I had a teacher look at me and say, you're good at writing. You should do this. Because I think sometimes you need somebody else to tell you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So your mom was a huge supporter, of course, uh, in shaping you and your reading habits. Uh, How about your dad? Well, my dad is a Shakespeare professor. He's retired now, but he taught Shakespeare for many, many years. And his specialty was the staging of Shakespeare plays. So I saw a lot of plays growing up. Oh, wow. (laughs) I got to the theater a lot because it didn't matter if he'd seen a play a hundred times because every time a play is staged, it's different. So, you know, that was his specialty and how they staged plays back in Elizabethan times to show things like time passing or morning or night without a lot of props and different things like that. So, you know, it was a very artsy family for sure. My brother is a musician. He's three years older than me. He actually currently is the head of the music department at UC Irvine. Wow. I know. So very creative family. And my mom is a mythologist, etymologist, Latin scholar. Like my parents are both big, you know, nerd. Oh my God. Stop showing off guys. You know, in my family, I am considered like the deadbeat because I don't have a PhD. think of myself that way. I know that's not how they think it, but it's like, which one of these is not like the other? Oh my gosh. That says so much about your family. If you are the deadbeat, holy moly, I would be nervous to be a part of this family. (laughs) You ended up not becoming a theater actress. Like what, what happened there? Did you ever try theater? I did. When I was in high school, middle school and high school, I really did like drama a lot. And, but you know, I had a hard time in high school and I think that's why I write YA. 
I was not very happy in high school for like a lot of various reasons. And I think if I had <laughs> been able to stay in your words, sort of kick ass, if I was kick ass back then, but I wasn't. And I think the pressure of having a family full of achievers is that you either feel like you're never going to measure up or it's not even worth trying. Like if you're not in a good place, you know, so it's like, oh, yeah. but I do think that my parents were very supportive of the arts, which I think as a writer and for my brother as a musician is incredibly important. And they understood that they were probably going to have to help us a little bit, you know, to get yeah. us where we needed to be. And when I was waiting tables and just had started writing books, my parents paid my health insurance, you know, for a lot of years so that I could write because writing is so not lucrative, you know, <laughs> when you first begin at least. And I was a waitress for many years. So they really supported me. I love that. A little bit about my background is that I was a working actor for over eight years. For me, starting off, it's so similar I feel like we kind of have parallel stories in high school and middle school. I was miserable. I wanted to get the hell out. You know, honestly, I didn't even tell my family about graduation. Wow. So I didn't want them to be there because I was ashamed because I knew I kept cutting class. I was sent to detention. I just wanted to get out and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I did one play in senior year and I felt like that saved me and gave me a purpose and intention in life. You know, at first I went against a lot of resistance from my family. Being a writer, an actor, the art world, you don't make money, you don't survive. We didn't come here to America for you to be a starving artist and to be homeless. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. So it's like you are kind of backtracking all that we've sacrificed. I didn't want to go to college at all either. I just wanted to jump straight into acting, into theater or whatever. My family said, no, if you want to act, you better go to college and it better not be an acting major. You better have either <laughs> business. Um, they're like, they try to squeeze in pharmacy. I was like, hell no. I basically <laughs> flunked chemistry and all that stuff. Heck no. I couldn't even get through bios. Terabyte. I switched to marine bio. Right. Jeez. And so my family was like, you know what? You better find something that could give you a good kind of backup. And I ended up doing creative writing, funny enough. But then for you, it sounded like your family was so, so supportive all the way through. They were paying the health insurance, helping you out, like my family did too when I first started off, before I got SAG health insurance. They were very, they tried to do what they could, but also... For yours, I think I'm always fascinated just because of my own experiences, how everyone else's experiences are with their parents directly. Were you met with any resistance or was it just full on, you know what, honey, we are great and proud because you mentioned you had a tough time in high school. It's like, we're happy you found a vision. Let's just do it. Like, how was that? Well, I think they were just happy that I found something, you know, because I just sort of my brother, I think growing up, you know, my brother plays the trombone and he started playing the trombone in like sixth grade or seventh grade, you know, and then he was just knew that that's what he wanted to do. He could play by ear when he was, you know, eight years old. He's just really, really talented. So I think for me, it was like, I didn't know what my thing was going to be. And again, I think in my mind, it was like, well, I'm never going to be as successful as my brother. So I'm just going to just go in the other direction. <laughs> you know, I was a mess. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think my parents were just glad that I found something. But I think, you know, all families are different. And I had a lot of support. And I think, you know, very sort of an eccentric household, which I think also makes you a writer. But I also believe that people that were unhappy in high school have more to say about high school. And that's why I probably am still writing about high school. You know, I think if I had had this very clean, great experience, like a lot of people do, I wouldn't 
have a lot of things to work through. I mean, obviously I'm still writing about this period in my life and trying to retell the story and like spin it in a better way for myself and everything, you know, over and at 14 times now. So I think that that has something to do with it too, is this idea of, I think my parents were very supportive, but I think also that they were very relieved when I found something and they always supported my writing, but writing is such a scary thing. Like you were saying with theater, with your parents, it's like, if I said I was going to be an accountant or I was going to be, you know, a physician, we know exactly what that trajectory looks like. It's like, okay, you go to college, then you go to medical school, then you do your residency. But with writing or in your case with acting, it's like there is no set path. So that's really scary for parents and for people who like to be in control of things. Yes. <laughs> and so the arts are frustrating, but they're also wonderful in that way. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. When you mentioned that in college, it was when one of your college professors was like, wow, you're really good at this. Did you discover a little bit of writing where you were writing secretly right before then in high school to kind of warm you up? Well, in high school, I love to write, but in my high school, I don't know what yours was like, but we didn't have like a lot of creative writing. You know, it was, there was one creative writing class and I finally got into it senior year. And then the teacher like threw his back out or something. So they took everybody and put them in other classes, but there were a few of us that they couldn't put anywhere else. So they put us in a class with this teacher named Mr. Sonnenberg, who, as far as I knew, had never taught creative writing before. And he was just like, well, write whatever you want, you know? And so we wrote like the darkest, most twisted, you know, explosions, things. <laughs> um, like, that's the most perfect thing ever for a creative writing class. <laughs> and when you're in high school, it's like you have to get that out of your system and you don't know how to end a story. So you kill everybody, you know I mean? But it was so liberating because my whole life I had been told, you know, write about your summer vacation, write about Abraham Lincoln, you know, or whatever. And now it was like, write what you want. And he would read it and be like, oh my gosh, this is so dark. Like, I'm glad nobody else is reading this, but just keep going. And so I would write stories about me and my friends, you know, like the trouble we were getting into. And, and I'd pass the stories around at lunch and my friends would read it and give me feedback and everything. But when I went off to college for the first time, because talk about humiliating for academic parents, you know, I dropped out of the first school I went to after three months. <laughs> I was going to be an advertising major. Like writing was just something fun, but I don't think I ever would have thought I could be a writer. So I'm so grateful actually that I went off to that school and dropped out and ended up back at UNC with Doris Betts who looked at me and said, you're good at this. Like, I feel like I got where I was supposed to be for sure. Mm, oh my gosh. Okay. What? It's a crazy way how life ends up being. Yes. Like all the path and you look back and you're like, wow, everything was meant to be because had I not had those experiences, you know, would not have pushed me to where I am now and being able to pull out specific memories, stories, and all of that. And also the ambition that you have now to want to keep continuing with your work because you've published a lot of books. Are you, <laughs> are you on like 14? Or you? Yeah, this one is 14, the rest of the story. I'm tired. I want to rest on my laurels for a while. But I mean, writing is therapeutic for me. So even if I think like writing is really, really hard and I don't want to write ever again, eventually I have to come back to it because it's how I process my life in the world. You know, so... It's that double-edged sword. Right now, I'm in this nice honeymoon period where I'm not having to do any writing, and it's great. But after a while, I'm going to get squirrely and start, you know, needing to do it again. I know that. Okay, you see, so you enjoy your honeymoon period, okay? But how, <laughs> I mean, for the 14 books before, if I were in your shoes, my biggest challenge, I feel like, would be how many times can I come up with stories and having different angles of it, different ideas for it, especially because it's YA-focused. Is that a challenge that you've come across? Because if it were me, I'd be like, oh my God, what do I write now? You know what I mean? Like, what the heck? <laughs> 
Well, I think we're lucky that we're always evolving and changing. And I think that it's helpful for me because I'm 48. I'm about to be 49. You look like you got some Asian genes in you. I will tell you. I was like, how is this young woman having so many books? I don't understand. I am confused. I try to be honest about my age, though, because I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm happy to be here. It's better than the alternative, you know, being 48, almost 49. But I think that the older I get, I'm looking at my high school experience and my adolescent experience with different eyes. So it's like an example would be when I first started writing my books, when I was in my 20s, the mother was always a very like specific kind of character. You know, the mother didn't understand or the mother was trying to be too controlling. And then as I, you know, had my own child, I'm like, the mom just wants to protect you. Of course, she doesn't want you to go off with that boy. So it's like, I have to look at the mothers in particular in a very different way now because I'm a mom now, you know, so. You have to pass on these books to your children so they understand where you're coming from if they're ever in trouble. The crazy thing is my daughter is 11. She's a big reader, which is fantastic. She just read my first book. She hasn't read any of the others. And I was a nervous wreck when she was reading this book because I was like, first she wanted me to read it out loud. And I said, no, because I will just see everything that is wrong with it. And, you know, that book's 20 years old. I'll just see how I would do everything differently. And she liked it a lot, but it was very surreal, you know, like that we're entering that. I always used to tell people, if anything's going to chase me out of YA for a few years, it would probably be my daughter reading YA, like (laughs) just wanting to let her have that for a while and not have me be there. (laughs) Yeah. I, I was just wondering how she probably is also, do you feel like she's almost like your biggest critic now? I think for years she didn't really understand what I did. And now she's like, oh, you know, and and because she loves to read so much, she gets excited when I'm like, oh, I know that person. You know, like that's always really fun. But all the people that she's really into are like way too famous. I don't know them. Jeff Kinney, you know, the Warriors people, whoever's writing those books, they're like four different people writing them, you know. But I think it's really interesting. And I think you hit on it, which is like, how do you keep things fresh and how do you keep things new? And I don't know, like my biggest fear is repeating myself. And I went through a thing a few years ago where I was online and people were saying, oh, all the Saradescent's books are the same. They follow the same trajectory. And I wish she'd do something different. And I was getting ready to start a new book. And I was kind of playing with the idea of doing something a little different. And it was the moon and more. And so I did. And then everyone's like, this book is not like the other books. I don't like it. Oh my gosh. Right? They're like, yeah, you can never please everybody. No. So you can't try to please everybody. This is an important, take it from me. It's taken me 48 years to learn this, but you can't. So, <laughs> so you might as well just please yourself. And as Stephen King says in On Writing, you know, write with the door closed, edit with the door open. So when I'm writing, I'm just, I'm trying not to think about what people are going to think, or is this too much like this? I'm just writing my book. And then when it's done, I know that, you know, I will bring other opinions in and my editor, my agent, you know, and they'll, we'll tweak it here and there, but the process of just getting it down on the page, that's all me. You know, nobody else can be involved in that. Just had a thought pop up right now having so many books under your belt, I have really bad short-term memory. Like I, it's horrendous. I have to work 10 times harder than most actors to memorize lines. So for me, I can't even imagine if I'm writing 14 books onto my 15th, I would forget absolutely everything that I wrote before <laughs> book number 12. So are you able to actually remember all the characters, even like the supporting characters, supporting scenes, from book one to then make sure you're not repeating for book 15, just because you've been here for so long. Like, again, people call you queen of YA for a reason. (laughs) Well, I think I have a a knack for remembering. I I do remember a lot about my books, but I will tell you, 
you know, I'm lucky I have such devoted readers because the other day I was on Twitter and somebody posted a quote from one of my books and I honestly did not know which book it was from. (laughs) And I retweeted it and said, oh my God, I'm totally blanking. And of course, immediately someone was like, oh, that's from the moon and more. It's in this scene. I was like, oh, you know, (laughs) I have to tell you, like talking about the memory thing, my memory has gotten really bad in the last few years. I I always say like, since I had my baby, but my baby's 11. (laughs) But for some reason, I can remember a lot of book stuff, but I will pull a book down off the shelf. Like just the other day with the new book, on the one hand, you know, I had to look up something in the galley and I was able to find like exactly what I was looking for immediately. But then I forgot the name of one of the best friends and I was like, oh, but then it came to me, you know, but it, it is a lot. It's kind of like keeping track of your family. I have this one friend, um, she's a reader in South Carolina and she's been reading my books forever and I call her my historian. So a lot of times if I get really stuck or I need somebody to, you know, pluck something out of the nether, I will ask her because she's really good and she knows a lot. That's incredible. You are so lucky you have that person. I know. Her name's Kayla. Shout out to Kayla. Oh my God. Shout out Kayla. Yes to you and your memory. Can I borrow some of your brain cells? Thank you. I would would really appreciate that for my scenes. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, That's incredible. Okay. Okay, so I'm wondering too, because like you said, you're growing and evolving with years and with age. So you're able to see things differently, like how you're talking about the mom characters and you're, you're just really making sure, okay, now I understand being a mom myself. They care. Sometimes it comes off, you know, as a kid, it may come off differently, but the good intention is always there for most parents, right? That we're lucky enough to have the good ones. And before you had children, the mom was kind of there and just the resistant force in a way. So that was before you had children. So that makes me wonder, you and your mom seemed close because she sounded like she supported you and like, you know, brought you to the library, made sure you were always having access to whatever books you wanted. But was there particularly a specific relationship with you and your mom? If you don't mind me asking, and obviously if if not, like we could skip it. No, no, no. I think it's very telling. You know, this is what I used to say when I read YA and the parents are a lot like sort of the states me saying this, but like the Charlie Brown adults, you know, it's like they're the mom, you know, it's like they're sort of a cardboard cutout. And I've heard other YA writers say, I'm not interested in writing about adults. You know, I want to write about teenagers. I get that. But when I was a teenager, my mom was never one dimensional. My mom contained multitudes, you know, just like I did. She was a different person every day. (laughs) And we were very, very close. But I do believe that, especially for girls, I think you have to break away from your mom a little bit. And so a lot of my book is, my books tend to be about that, is this sort of break so that you can come back. And I think that was particularly fraught for my mother and I, because we were very, very close. And then when I felt like I wanted to break away from her and I sort of created a little sub family out of my friends and stuff, which is what you do in your teens and your twenties, that I was like abandoning her or whatever. You know, my mom is complicated. I'm complicated, but I think there's a reason why I'm constantly writing about mothers, because I think I'm trying to figure out what kind of mom I want to be. And if you've noticed with my books, like the first book that I wrote after my daughter was born was Along for the Ride. And that's the first book with like a baby in it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the new book has a 10-year-old in it, which is very sort of, she's not like my daughter, but she's the same age and she loves to read. So I stole those things from Sasha. And so you can see as I'm growing up and writing these books, I am bringing more things in, in that I can relate to. You know what I mean? Like I'm jumping to a different topic here a little bit, but it's interesting that, If you're going to keep writing about your teenage years and having to delve back into those feelings and those emotions, especially as it ties with your parents and stuff, it's nice to have sort of a proxy 
of somebody else that you can write about that is not involved in that. <laughs> so it's kind of nice to not just write about mother and daughter. That's what I'll do with secondary characters. You know, you get yourself a nice quirky secondary character and you don't have to dig that deep because the narrator, I feel like with the parents, it's always deep. I don't know anyone who has a really simple relationship with their parents, even people who have healthy relationships with their parents. In the very beginning, we were chatting about how your family is so driven and so accomplished and your mom being a badass woman. <laughs> I'm sure she was from a time when obviously, I mean, we're still struggling trying to make equal pay for women. So imagine your mom's time. Right. What a struggle it was to be a woman fighting against a world of men where only men were the ones given a specific role, specific positions in the company. But for her to be doing what she does and and killing it, I'm sure. She just sounds like such a dynamic, very multi-layered powerhouse woman, like who we would call hashtag boss lady these days, you know? She was one of the original OG boss ladies. Hearing you say jokingly, and I know you're joking, but saying that you're the deadbeat of the family, no, because you are <laughs> killing it. And it's crazy because then it makes me wonder how like difficult it was to grow up in a family like that. And knowing like how accomplished everybody is and they're still so loving. You know, there's nothing that you can pinpoint and be like, well, they said this to me and this to me that scarred me for life. No, it's not even like that. You know what I mean? It's in your blood to be like your family that's very driven where you are so tough on yourself. I think that's true. And I think also, you know, my mom, we moved here. I'm, I live in North Carolina and I was born in Evanston, Illinois. My dad, you know, I was a faculty brat. So my brother was born in Wisconsin when my dad was at the University of Wisconsin. Then I was born when my dad was at Northwestern. And then we moved here. And my mom was this, you know, she grew up in New York City. She was a feminist back when that was not a really popular, this was the early 70s. And she moved down here and was in this world of these Southern women, you know, who were very genteel and sweet. And my mom was very opinionated. <laughs> you know, she did not get tenure, which was traumatizing for her. Um, and that was really, really hard because she was in an all male department, you know, and there we go. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I grew up actually hearing a lot about, you know, you don't let somebody tell you you can't do something because you're a girl. My mom would say there are lots of things that you can't do because you probably just can't, you know, like I, we all knew I wasn't going to be a brain surgeon. That was just not in the cards for me. <laughs> but it wasn't that I was a girl. It was just that I was not driven in that way. You know, I think that is a really big gift to get. And my mom made a point of showing me women that were successful, which I think also is helpful, you know, to be like, look, here is this woman. And these days there were women, I was thinking about the woman, remember the picture that went viral this week of the woman that did the picture of the black hole? Oh, that was incredible. Pulled that picture up this morning at breakfast. And I was like, showed it to my daughter. I was like, look at this woman, you know, like we didn't have as much of that when I was a kid. Like there weren't, there were some, but I feel like it's so much more prevalent now. So but my mom and I, we have our fraught moments and everything. And I do think that the way that your role in the family is how you always feel like you are. You know, like yes. when you're around your parents, you just regress. So I still refer to myself as the deadbeat, but I'm sure other people in my family would be like, that's not true. Yeah, you know, behind your back and in front of you, they're always showing off like, oh my God, she's the most successful one in this whole family. You know, it's funny how we all perceive things. It's all because of experience. Yeah. Thank you for having that banter with me because I know that gets personal. So I appreciate you opening up in that way. It's something that 
shapes us all as storytellers, right? Like you were saying, in our stories, it's reflective a lot of times of our relationships with our own parents and adults overall. And you can see how it comes out in your stories. And we have a lot of listeners who are also parents. And to also know now to hear how your storytelling has changed a bit, specifically with the mother characters, since you became a mom. And I think that's a beautiful way of seeing life through a lens of a storyteller and how things can affect your art. Well, I do think it's like I'm writing about myself as a teenager these days, but I'm also writing about myself as an adult through these other characters. You know, when I was in high school, I wrote all these stories about me and my friends, and I I loved writing those stories. Then I got to college, and I was like, oh, we're in college. Everyone was writing, you know, very dark, sex-filled drugs, cigarettes, you know, lots of dark trees against a dark sky, like really depressing stuff and everything. You can't do that in high school. You know, college is for like embracing the darkness, you know. Mm -hmm. So I tried to write these really dark stories and everybody hated them, you know. And so then I wrote a story about the prom and everybody loved it. But I remember being so angry because I was like, I don't want to write about high school. I hate (laughs) high school. I couldn't wait to get out of high school. This is not fair. But obviously I still needed to work through that. And so I think I'm still going back and I'm still retelling these stories and trying to have some sort of happy ending for that girl that I was back then. That's what I think I'm doing, you know, to really get into therapy talk. (gasps) Yes. And I think we're all doing that. I just gave a speech this last weekend to a bunch of girls and I was talking about how when we're young, we all want our story, you know, to be just like everybody else's. But then you realize that the more unique your story is, the more unique you are, you know? So we need to embrace all of these bad parts and good parts and everything. Like, I don't want everything to be neat and clean anymore because that's not life. Sarah, I have to jump in. I love that you mentioned you writing these stories now is like finding that healing process for that person you were, for that dark space you were in, in high school. And I I think that resonates so much. I'm so stuck on certain parts and certain things that have happened, even if it's way back in middle school or high school. But my God, how how formative those years were, right? Everything that's happened to us at that time it feels like a hundred times more the weight and the heaviness of it than it would now. And it's real. And I feel like there's so much as a storyteller that you can pull from that, but also to help you as a human being heal and move forward and evolve to the next phase of who you need to be and who you were meant to be. Being a storyteller, it's not one or the other. You are a human. And as a human, you are an artist. You've chosen because you've wanted to write. You've chosen to be an artist. And there's something about that with artists. You know, it doesn't matter if it's writing, acting, musician, like your brother. There's so many things in us that we need to heal. And art goes hand in hand with the healing. And I love that you have those conversations with the young girls in schools now. And I think I've also tried to be really open, not only with my experience in high school and dropping out of the first university I went to, because And like you saying, I was miserable in high school. I didn't even invite my parents to graduation. You know, it's like, there are some girls out there that don't know anybody that feels that way. Like they feel they are the only person that has ever felt that way. And hearing you say it on this podcast for me say it, they're like, oh, you know, (laughs) I'm not broken. I'm not messed up and everybody else, I'm going to be okay. And so that to me sort of transcends also, like it applies also to writing because writing is really hard for me, you know, and I try to be very honest about that too, because I, I hate when writers are very opaque and the muse singing or whatever, shut up. You know, it's like, (laughs) I taught writing for a long time. So I I understand too, that like when you're in the trenches, you want to hear that it's hard for other people too. So I try to be really 
almost to a fault. I think I sometimes share too much about my process and how I'm agonizing. And this particular book that's about to come out was really hard. I try to be honest about that, just like I'm honest about high school. You know, everybody reacted very positively to your story where you wrote about prom, right? And you were thinking, oh God, no, you know, I don't want to write about prom. So you were definitely resistant to writing YA. I mean, looking at it now, was there a particular reason or a specific reason as to why you wanted to kind of stay away from writing more YA? And would it be different if you were writing YA now, just starting to write in this landscape now? Because YA is very different now. It's a whole different world. I mean, you have to remember, (laughs) I'm so dating myself. (laughs) I sold that summer my first book in the fall of 94, and it came out in 96. So... Back then, there was not even a YA section at the bookstore. You know, there was the children's book section, and there was my book next to, you know, Paddington and Strawberry Shortcake. Seriously. Oh, wow. They had not figured out yet that teenagers don't want to go to the children's book section. This was pre-Harry Potter. This was pre-Hunger Games. This was pre-Twilight. You know, none of that was out there. So my experience with YA growing up was like, yes, Lois Lowry, you know, a couple of other things. But I thought... I was in college and you're encouraged, you know, you can never have a bigger, bigger ego than when you're in a college writing class, you know, and you just think I am a very serious writer and I'm not writing YA. Those are children's books. You know, like I am a serious Southern literature writer. That's what I thought, you know, but everyone kept saying, but this is good. This is good. And I really resisted it because I was like, I don't want to be that kind of writer. But when I realized that that was my strength, you know, for years I was writing a YA book And then I was writing a a regular adult book, which makes it sound like porn, you know, adult movie, (laughs) Um, contemporary fiction. I don't know what you would call it. And I would send the contemporary fiction book to my agent and she'd be like, eh, she was right. Like my YA was just better. It's like play to your strengths, but it's more fraught also. So that's just part of it. I think that's the handoff. Oh, that's so fascinating. I'm just, it's just always cool to have like a peek inside every author's mind why they saw things certain ways and choices that they made, what led them to make that choice and reflecting on it now way later. Let's segue into the rest of the story. Your book coming out June 4th, right? June 4th, I remember. And your episode is dropping June 13th. Perfect. By the time everybody's listening to this, grab a copy if you have not (laughs) yet, okay? And I appreciate you so much about being transparent. And and you did mention like, you know, sometimes you feel like you're a little bit too transparent. But listen, (laughs) trust me, Sarah, there's never enough of transparency. So don't ever, ever feel like, oh gosh, I just said too much because you know what? What you might feel is too much is not enough for somebody and it just saved them with their craft or their where they are in life. So thank you so much for that. All right. So why don't we kick it off? Why don't you give us a snapshot of what the rest of the story is about? Okay. Well, it is about a girl named Emma Saylor. She's grown up with her dad. Her mom died about five years before the book begins of an opioid overdose, which I was interested in writing about that since it's sort of a very current thing that is happening. And she has to go spend part of the summer with her mom's family who she doesn't remember at all. And so it's really like we were talking about the story, finding out that you have this whole other family, you know, besides the one that you know, this whole other group of people that claim you. And what does that mean for you in terms of your story? You know, so backtrack. I started a new book last January. So January, 2018. And this is my, this is my trajectory. I start a book in January. I finish into June every other year 
great. So I set out to do that and everything was going really well. (laughs) And then the book just fell apart in the middle of February. It had happened before, but not so hugely, you know, like I really thought things were going well and I was feeling good. And then I just hit this wall and I ended up having to set it aside. And regular people that follow me on Twitter have seen the picture that I posted. I have a lot of misfires and I'm honest about that too. I have 13 books in my closet that will never see the light of day. In addition to your going on 15? Yeah. Because I told you I was alternating all those years. I was writing like a YA book and then I was writing a regular book and nobody liked them. So I was just like chucking them in the closet. And then I got a few YA books that didn't work, you know, that just imploded for whatever reason or people didn't like them. So why are you such a machine? Stop it. I am so, I'm like seething with envy. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like when you take a wrong turn and you just keep taking wrong turns until you're like, no, once you realize you're lost, stop. Yes, okay. <laughs> you know, go back to the last place that you recognized and go right instead of left. Like, that's what I've sort of learned how to do. But at this point, this book was falling apart, and I was like, oh, my God. So we went to Paris. My family, I was doing a bunch of book stuff, and that was awful because everyone's asking you, what are you working on? It's like, nothing. It's over. I'm a disaster. Oh, no. Everything's falling apart. You know? And then I came back, and I... I just sort of forced myself to start this book and I had to double time it, which I only really write about two hours a day. That's about what I thought I had in me. And I prefer to write in the afternoons. I have my whole little schedule. I have my little chocolates that I eat and everything. Oh, I love that. But with this book, I had to double time it. So I had to change my whole way of working because I would get up in the morning and I'd go and work at a coffee shop for two hours. And then I'd come home and I'd write for two hours in the afternoon. So because I was behind, I knew I wanted to have a book out this June. And in order to do that, I just had to. So I just isolated myself. It was miserable, I have to tell you. But so was The Truth About Forever. And so was Just Listen. So I feel like that bodes well as far as all that goes, but I don't know. I mean, it's, this book was very different and I'm really curious to see if people read it differently, if people feel that it, it feels different to them because it does for me. Well, what are you hoping that readers will take away from it? Like all of this effort that you put into this book? Well, I have to say, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. I feel like I've written about daughters and mothers and daughters and mothers for so many years. And I've had all these relationships and this is the first time I've had a mother that is not living. So that is different. And I think it's much more about the daughter's story than how the daughter's story necessarily fits with the mother's story. Like for Emma, her mom is everywhere when she's at the lake with her mom's family, but she doesn't really know her mom's stories, you know, so she's hearing them from other people, but she's also forging her own way at the same time, if that makes sense. I feel like so much of my books have been about a daughter and her relationship with her mother. And I really feel this book is about a girl and her relationship with herself. A lot of times we make these choices that are really subconscious, but are you conscious of the choice that you made and was it very intentional or it just kind of came to you? Because this is a big different move from all your other books, you know? Right. I think it came to me, but sort of after the fact. I think that I was just writing what felt good, which is what we do, you know? And it's like, If the writing is going well and it's seamless, then you keep going in that direction. But you hit a wall, then you turn around and go find another way, you know. But this book, I think I was just being honest on the page. I think it's easy to hide behind, you know, your interactions with somebody else. So I've often defined my characters by the way that they dealt with their mother. And I wanted to just define this character by the way she dealt with everybody else (laughs) and not the mother or just on her own terms. And I think that's the difference. 
but the mom, you know, her story is there and she's, you know, she's a ghost though. So it's a little different. And I don't know, I, I feel like it's, I was ready. And, you know, I changed publishers, which is a huge deal. And there've been a, a lot is different about this book, just in terms of where I am as a writer and everything. So I'm curious to see how it goes. I really am. Well, first of all, I know, not even guessing or thinking, I know the readers are going to love whatever you give to them, okay? (laughs) And I know they're going to be grateful that you're still spending this time to write and create for your readers. So honestly, I'm excited for you because this is also adds to the evolving of your workmanship as an artist. That's something that artists always need to do is always try something different, always try something new. Okay, I'm going to circle back to how you were saying you kept running into walls. I know you mentioned that you were a teacher before. So in your voice of a teacher, I guess you could say, or like a mentor to our listeners who are stuck with their own stories and running into their own walls, let's say for the past months, what do you have to say to them in addition to what you already shared? Because I feel like there's something different when you're sharing it via a mentor's perspective. Well, I think it can be very confusing because on the one time when writing is really, really hard, you want to quit. Yes. But also when the writing is really, really hard, that means you have to work harder than ever and push through. It's just like life. You know, when you come across something that makes you uncomfortable, your first reaction is to go in the other direction and not deal with it. Right. Yes. But with writing, you kind of just have to push through. I find it easier to deal with things on the page than in real life. (laughs) Because it's just me, you know, yes. and I'm I'm sort of, and also what's great about being a writer is you can control everything. You know, the rain isn't working, you make the rain stop. This is why I was not a good English major because I couldn't do that when I was writing about Jane Austen. You know, I couldn't just change things. But I will say to people, I think the fear is important. I think Harlan Coben said, you know, the only really confident writers are bad writers. <laughs> like most of the writers that I know are struggling. And that's why it's helpful to be so honest. And so I tell people like, I have been at this time last year, I was in a really dark place. Like I was writing nonstop. I was really isolated myself. I was unhappy on many, many levels. And it just shows that, you know, you can come out of it and and you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I would tell people as a teacher, I would say to my students, Write every day, even if it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just get in the habit, sit down every day and do it because those little 15 minutes, they're going to get you out of that dark place. You know, 15 minutes at a time, five minutes at a time, one breath at a time and just keep going. But then there's also the the double-edged sword of it, which is like sometimes the best thing you can do is walk away. So I've done that too. You know, go do something, anything else. Don't think about it. You know, don't push through. So it's finding what works for you. There was a great quote when I was in high school and college that I read that said, there are three rules to writing the novel. Unfortunately, nobody knows what they are. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who said it, but I thought, oh my God, that is so true. Because the way that I write a novel is not going to be the way that you write a novel And only you know how you can do it. And you've got to figure it out for yourself. So comparing living laterally writing wise will just make you nuts, you know? Mm, Yes, yes. You have to know your process. And that's the same with the arts with anything. You know, the way you get from point A to point B in the arts is going to be totally different. Because like we said before, there's no set trajectory. There's no dot, dot, dot. And then you get to where you want to be. You're making it up as you go along. Oh, I love that. Okay. That's great. Because I was actually (laughs) going to ask you, how do you know when you need to take a break or when you need to just push through and write those 15 minutes a day? And there you go. You just said everybody needs to discover it for themselves. So I think there's something in that 
where it also teaches people self-reliance, where you need to trust your own instincts and your own intuition. This also reminds me of when you're in those dark spaces, dark places, I do feel like sometimes it's helpful, like having your work or parts of your work being read or shared to someone that you trust, almost like a writing buddy, a critique partner. Is that something that you are a fan of or you are kind of more so, no, I work on my own because I I know much earlier at the top, we were talking about how like you work through your things, you don't want to be affected by what others are saying or thinking, right. and then you share it with your editor and whoever. But before that, there do you have any like writing Mm, partners that you do trust that you know that you can always go to them because they're not going to crush your soul, but they're going to give you inspiration, you know? Right. Well, I have to say, I don't show anybody anything while I'm working on it. I am famously private, but the reason for that is the first novel that I wrote, I wrote in my college writing workshop and writing a novel and workshop and you're bringing in your chapter and then everybody's just shredding it. You know, I know now as a novelist that the main thing in a first draft is just get it down on the page. You know, don't worry about whether this tree is blooming this time of year. You know, that's, that's <laughs> not helpful. And so I would be writing these chapters and bring them in and my classmates would say, oh, you know, well, this tree wouldn't be blooming or it takes longer to drive from there to there because I set it in a real place. That's why all my books are set in pretend places now. So nobody can tell me how long it takes to get from the <laughs> gas station to the grocery store or whatever. So that's not a good way to write a novel is with people, you know, but I think there are people that need that. They need the cheering on, you know, and, and I need the cheering on, but I don't want anyone knowing what I'm doing. I just need like a good pat on the back, like go Sarah, go, you know, <laughs> yes. again, this is the 14th time, you know, my agent at this point knows that if she calls me a certain time in this process, I'm going to be in tears and I'm going to say, I'm never going to do this. It's, and she's like, yep, yep. Right on time. Okay. I'll talk to you in a couple of months when you're done. You know, I mean, seriously, <laughs> but for me, it's this, it's so neurotic every time, but for everybody else standing on the outside, they're like, oh, Sarah, work it out, you know, <laughs> but the nice thing is if you have writer friends, and I know a lot of writers are listening, which is why I'm saying this now, those are the people that will save you. It doesn't have to be reading your work. It doesn't have to be giving you criticism or feedback or anything. It can just be understanding. Like when I went to Paris after my book fell apart, there's a writer named V.E. Schwab. Yes, she's amazing. Yes. So we had the same publisher in, in France. I had never met her, but we were at the book fair together. And I remember in very writerly way, she and I barely knew each other, but immediately I started telling her about how my whole professional life was imploding and I was never going to write another book and it was all terrible. And she's like, nope, nope, you've got this. You can do this. Because mm. she was in a place where she was feeling good. So she could say that to me. And she said to me later, it's like we're handing the baton back and forth. Yeah. You know, it's like I was in a terrible spot. I think she had just finished a book, so she was feeling pretty good. So she was able to say, nope, nope, you've got this. Head down, work hard. It's Okay. And that was so helpful to me. And so that's what I take from my writer friends and from other writers is like, this is so hard. And sometimes you just want someone to say, yes, it is. And you're not alone. When you're running out of that energy, you need to feed off of somebody else's energy. And I just love that between you and Victoria. And she's so awesome. She's so wonderful. And the fact is you also found 
transparency in Victoria as well, because she's known to be a very, very upfront, honest, transparent person. So you can trust that when she says, you've got this, you're going to be okay. You know she's not BSing you. What else was challenging with your story? Were there any characters that were really tripping you up? Were there any scenes that were particularly, who knows, emotional for you? Was there anything like that for you when working on the rest of the story? Well, I think there were there were a lot of scenes like that. One thing that I have in the rest of the story, and it's not a totally prevalent, but when Emma gets to the lake, she has a lot of anxiety and she like organizes things to deal with her anxiety. She likes things to be in order. And that is something that I do also. I've always had a lot of anxiety. I take medication and I'm in therapy, <laughs> thank God. But a lot of my problems in high school, I think came from the fact that I was undiagnosed, you know, and, and that I had a lot of anxiety and I didn't understand it and didn't know how to do with it. So I wanted to write about that. So I think those things, you know, like Emma is a lot like me in terms of that she wants things to make sense. But when you have a mother like hers that is confusing and erratic and then gone, you're just trying to make everything clean and neat in your life, but life isn't neat and clean. No. And I think that was the thing that kept coming up as I was writing this book, that it was messy and it was almost feral sometimes. It was like, oh my God, you know, I'm never going to be able to do this. And that to me is what the book is sort of about, like not being neat and clean. I'm sorry if that's, I don't think feel like I'm making sense, but it, just the idea of giving my character something that I could really, really relate to helped me to work through that issue a little bit. Because every time I feel that things are out of control, I want to organize things. Like right now, because my book's getting ready to come out, all I'm doing is organizing my house. My whole family is like ready to kick me out. They're done. <laughs> Stop throwing my things away. Stop putting everything in a bin, you know. Are you Marie Kondoing right now? I am. Well, I'm <laughs> doing it like, but it's really bad right now. Like I'm wrapping cords so we don't have to see the cords. No one's like, we don't care about the cords. I'm like, no, it's got to be perfect. You know, so... I see this in myself and somehow I'm not getting better, but I think I am. <laughs> but I think that's the nice thing about writing. Writing has to be personal. Yes. Unless you're, you know, really able to set yourself outside. But I don't think you can write, especially in first person, without really having something in common with the person you're writing about. It doesn't have to be something huge, but it's got to be strong. It's got to be something you can relate to. And so I think for me and Emma, it's this wanting things to be neat and clean and tie up in a little bow and realize that that is just not the way the world is and that that's okay. Yes. And also thank you, Sarah, for mentioning real talk about anxiety and seeing a therapist and having medication, because that is something we need to break and smash those stigmas and stereotypes because I see a therapist. Um, I've stopped for a little bit. I'm going back in. That's another thing where I think it's important that people, even if you try it once, you're not having a great experience, you don't stop. You're finding your one. You're finding the lover of your life and it is okay to keep. Listen, now we've got all these different dating sites. Why can't we look around for therapists? Do you know what I mean? Like they need to have something like that where, you know, I know there are online resources, but this is something that needs to be talked about. There used to be really bad shaming around talking about therapy, especially from our parents and grandparents generation. But now I'm thank God it is now being more of an open topic where people are much more comfortable and transparent talking about it. And this is something I never shy away from on this podcast is very much you need to do what you got to do to take care of you. Because if your mind and your heart is not working, your soul is broken. Sorry, 
there's nothing that's going to come out of you and you are only going to burn yourself out and you are hurting and harming yourself. Don't think just because it's a brain thing, quote unquote, that it's not a big deal because it's not like an actual physical wound. No, the psychological ones I think are, and the heart filled ones are the ones that are most damaging if we do not take care of ourselves. So please, especially artists listening in, it is so important to seek out whoever and just to have a talk. You know what I mean? It's just always good to have a talk. And I appreciate you bringing that up. I really do. Well, I think also to just say to people, you don't have to suffer. You're like, I'm saying yes. writing is really hard and there are days that I'm curled up in the fetal position. <laughs> but I hesitated getting on medication to be even more honest for a long time because I thought that the anxiety and the all of that was tied to my creativity, you know, which is a very common thing. John Green has talked about this also. Like you think that the crazy or whatever, crazy is a bad word. The anxiety, whatever is going on in your brain is the trade-off. Like, well, I'm a writer, so this is what I have to deal with. But that's not true. You know, it's not going to affect your creativity. If anything, it's made me a better writer in a lot of ways. It makes you more clear and more focused. Yeah, you can dig down deeper. You're not hitting bedrock where there's you're, you're afraid to go any further, like getting all the way down. Yes, that was something that was dangerous. It's funny that you mentioned that. My work as an actor, I was so afraid to see a therapist because I thought that my power and my emotions, my, my well where I can tap into the emotional side and bring out whatever for whatever darker characters was in the fact that I did not work on certain issues for my own personal life so I could keep tapping back into it. Then I realized, oh, it backfired so badly that I realized, oh my gosh, you are putting yourself through this cycle of toxicity that you're tapping into an area that needs to have healing. So you need to talk to a therapist about that because then you can take whatever it is from those memories after you've healed and laser focus and be able to like shoot out however you want to shoot it out with your craft. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not even sure if I'm explaining it correctly. Like my hands are moving everywhere, like in like a laser (laughs) formation. I'm like, oh gosh, I wish Sarah could see this. But that is the thing. And I love that you talked about that where you're not hitting a bedrock, like you said, there is so much there and you're going to be even more clear and focus where that emotion and that, that inspiration comes from and all those tools that you think may be gone after seeing a therapist. No, it actually comes back to you tenfold. It really does. It does. And being a writer, I think 100% of it is self-care. I think when you have any job where you spend a lot of time sitting alone in a room in front of a computer in your own head, yes, you've got to find a way to engage with the world in a healthy way. And you know that time has to be the way that it is. Writing has to be however your process is. If it's excruciating, that's just how it is. But that doesn't mean your whole life has to be like that. That's literally two hours a day. And that's the differentiation. You know, it's like, okay, I'm miserable and I'm writing, but then I shut the door to my office and go over and play Barbies with my daughter and I'm okay. You know, like so... I love that. I know you mentioned that you changed publishers. How was that? Because your publisher you've been with for a long time, I'm assuming, your past one. Yeah. For your experience, from whatever you are allowed to share, so listeners can you know heed with warning if they're ever considering something or just to be aware of certain things. Well, you know, I had been with my previous publisher, which was Penguin, Viking Children's Books, basically since about 1998. And the way that I look at it is it's kind of like, I just grew up and had to leave the nest in a little way. You know, I mean, there wasn't, not from my end, and I don't think from theirs either. I learned so much at Penguin and they were great to me. But I think I was going through a lot of changes in my own life and I knew that this book was different. And I started thinking, you know, maybe I can be more than 
the pastel covers and the love stories and the pink beach books for summer, you know, because that's sort of the genre that I've been put in. But I don't think my books are just that. So I was really curious what it would be like, you know, when I came to Penguin, I was a 28-year-old waitress and I am now a 48-year-old novelist, you know. So to come to a different publisher and sort of get a, a fresh start as the writer I am now, not the writer that I was, is nice. I feel like I'm just growing up and it's, I was trying to compare it. I would say to people, well, it's kind of like a divorce and we share custody of these 13 books. Yeah, you guys are (laughs) co-parenting. We're co-parenting, but it's not acrimonious at all. You know, we all want the best for the books. It's like, that's my feeling is that we have this whole backlist and we all want the best for that. So we're focused on that. And, but I think it's okay. It's like, I still live in my hometown. You know, I I never left. I married a boy I met in high school. Like I don't change things. So this was really big for me, you know, but I know it was the right thing to do because now I can sort of, I don't have to be the person I was. I can be the person I am, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for touching on that for listeners. If you feel like you're ready to move on, it's okay to move on. Absolutely. Everybody moves around a lot. Like I, to stay in one place for 20 years, most of my friends have multiple books at different publishers. Like it's, again, the way that I do it is just backwards. (laughs) But everybody has their own different journey. Yes. So I love that you shared that. Okay, so now trying to squeeze in the next thing, we usually do listener questions. So you had a few, but I'm just going to select one, okay? So this is Camille Leeds. She said, hi, Sarah. It's so exciting that you're on the podcast. My sister and I are both fans of your novels, and they've helped us bond. My question, what are your tips for writing a compelling romance plot line? And how do you think your writing of romantic arcs have evolved over time? Well, that is a really good question. I think what I've always done with the romantic arcs is that I kind of have to fall in love with, in my books, it's the boy. I kind of have to fall in love with him too. So I'm always looking for a fun way to get that interplay going. You know, in this lullaby, it's, you know, we have the whole silverware thing. Like, you bought me silverware. You love me. You know, this kind of teasing back and forth. In the rest of the story, we have a boy who has a lot of jokes and inside jokes and everything. And my neighbor, Emma's afraid to drive. And so I knew that I could have a lot of really fun scenes with him teaching her how to drive. You know, you want to get the characters together in an unusual situation. I love a scene where people are doing something and then talking while they're doing it because you can show how they are when they're doing a task, but then you can also show little quirky parts of their personality. So I've always loved that as far as, so if you're, if you're stuck and you want to show people falling in love or starting to crush on each other, find some kind of mundane activity to have them be doing. And then you can add the other layer of them, you know, finding each other attractive and everything. Cause you're never just sitting. That's what I tell people. You're never just sitting there thinking, you know, you're usually doing something else. So In fiction, have people be doing things because things are always happening. Perfect. Okay, Sarah, let's wrap it up with rapid fire questions. Oh boy. So these are going to be fun. Okay, what is one thing that's really exciting you with your work right now? Well, I think just that I have this new book coming out that's really different. I mean, even the cover is different. Everything is different. So that's really exciting to me, but it's terrifying at the same time. You know, it's like change. Again, I am not a person who does a lot of change. So you know, but I'm excited. I'm actually really excited. Okay. Next rapid fire question for uh, most of our community. They are always concerned realistically with finances, Mm. balancing finances realistically. So please real talk and transparency about making sure you have time to work on your craft, but also not starving and living on the streets. 
Well, exactly. I mean, I waited tables. I sold my first book and my second book and was waiting tables. And then I went and taught at a university. You know, I wasn't a writer, like a full-time writer supporting myself until after my seventh book. So, and I didn't hit the bestseller list until my seventh book either, which I like to remind people because I think the expectation right now with these first-time authors, it's so high. It's like, Everybody wants to hit the bestseller list to get a movie deal with their first book, you know, and that if you're if that's the goal, that's really hard to make that happen, you know. So I think for me, I think we all just need to be working on our craft and trying to focus on that. And then if other things continue to happen, that's wonderful. Many of our listeners have also gone through or currently going through a spell of being stuck. So what is something that you can advise them in, let's say, just a few short sentences on how to push through? What I tell people is, again, it's going back to the analogy of kind of getting lost when you're driving. If you're riding along and things are going pretty well and you're feeling good, and then suddenly you hit this wall and things aren't working and you can't figure out why, go back and figure out what changed a few pages earlier. Did you bring in a new character? Did you switch a setting? Did you make some kind of choice about something? that has thrown everything off and go back and look at that and maybe make a different choice and just see if that can get you back on track. Because usually if it stops flowing, you've hit an obstacle and you've got to either go around it or double back, you know? And so you've got to sort of figure that out. But I always encourage people to just kind of read over what you've done, find the last place where you were feeling enthusiastic and do a different choice there. Amazing. What is the proudest moment in your career? Oh my God. I know this is hard. (laughs) I'm terrible. I like want to give you like five things because I'm terrible at narrowing anything down. Well, one of the proudest moments in my career, I have to say, I did the BEA uh, breakfast many years ago, right before I think What Happened to Goodbye came out. And I was so nervous when I walked up to that podium. My dress was sticking to the back of my legs. Julianne Moore introduced me. I mean, I was terrified. I was the only one without a PowerPoint presentation. You know, it was like, (laughs) And I just got up there and did it. And when I finished that and people applauded and I walked off stage, I thought if I can do that, I can do anything because I have never been so scared in my life, (laughs) but I did it. So I always remember that like, okay, that was terrifying. And I thought I was going to pass out, but I did it. I am so proud of you. Get it. Air high five. Oh my gosh. That's so good. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? Well, I would say some of the best advice I've ever received is someone who overshares all the time (laughs) is, um, one of my friends said to me once, you know, Sarah, people only know what you tell them. Ooh. And and I thought, that's really true. Because I think as an author, I'm like a constant confessional. You know, like, I just feel like I have to tell everybody everything. You know, I have to just confess if I'm anything that's going on with me. And you can keep your own counsel a little bit. <laughs> that's good advice for me personally. But as far as writing, I think the best advice is the discipline. I mean, train your brain that you write every day. And then when you're not writing every day, for me, it's like at a specific time, three o'clock to 4.30, three o'clock to five. I'm very aware when I'm not writing. So that's how the discipline works for me. Like, why aren't you writing? What are you doing? You know, like you should be working right now. And I just have trained myself. And I think if you want people to take you, you know, seriously as an author, you have to take yourself seriously as an author and make a schedule and be disciplined. That's just... It is, you know, and it's hard, but that's, that's what sets us apart from the people who just read books. What are small manageable steps you'd advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I think it comes down to what works for you. 
You know, I think I don't outline, but I know people that it's, it goes back to that quote of like, no one knows what those three rules are, but everybody has their own way. I know people who outline every chapter. I know people who have outlined six more books. You know, I don't outline. So you figure out what works for you and don't muddy it with what other people are telling you. I, I used to say to people, go to you know the library, go to the reference section, read a bunch of books on how to write novels. And now I'm like, no, don't do that. <laughs> because there are like a million viewpoints telling you how to do it. And there's no one way. But that's the other secret that nobody tells you. You have to figure out your own way because everybody writes a novel differently. So part of the process is figuring out how you do it and then how you're going to do it again. Wow. I cannot believe you don't work with outlines. I'm just like, how the heck? So now tell us where we can find you on social media to thank you for your time. Well, saradestin.com is my website. And through that, you can find my Instagram and my Twitter. I have a Facebook page, but I'm pretty slack about it, to be honest. But <laughs> I am mostly on Twitter. Twitter is sort of my weapon of choice. So if you're on Twitter, look for me there. But I, I try to post everywhere. I really do. And as the book ramps up, you'll probably get sick of me on social media because I'm having to post a lot more. My love, you enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'm going to let you go because you got a whole family to hang out with and have an amazing time. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up our episode with Sarah Dessen. Sarah, thank you so much for spending time with us and being so vulnerable and sharing your experience and incredible advice. I really enjoyed this conversation and seriously, thank you again. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to drop by and say hi to Sarah over on Twitter at Sarah Dessen. Don't forget, if you head over to Sarah's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Sarah Dessen, you can download the exclusive writing prompt she created just for our storytellers to help strengthen your writing by focusing on the small details. If you loved this conversation, I would so appreciate if you could take a little bit of time out of your day to hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review for our podcast. I truly appreciate your help in growing our community and thank you so much in advance. At the top of the show, I mentioned a little bit about our partnership with Four Sigmatic, and I am so excited about this. I grew up with parents who taught me about herbs and roots by consuming them in our drinks and soups and even desserts. This is super common in Chinese medicine where non-toxic plants, otherwise known as adaptogens, are believed to help our body, like boosting the immune system and improving brain function. I tried Four Sigmatic after finding them at a grocery store and I immediately recognized the names of the different herbs and mushrooms I grew up having. Four Sigmatic specializes in these herbal drinks that support our immunity and energy and longevity. Their goal is to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. And I'm honestly incredibly impressed at how creative they can get with their blends. I'm talking about infusing the superfoods into mainstream products, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, hot cacaos, matcha, and superfood blends. And they make it really accessible to those of you who've never tried them before. I know there's a ton of coffee drinkers in our community. So if you're one of the coffee lovers, I have a feeling you're going to really like their mushroom coffee with the lion's mane that supports productivity, focus, and creativity. I even read that lion's mane has been used by Buddhist monks for thousands of years to help focus during meditation. If you start or end your day with writing sprints, I could not recommend a more perfect drink to switch out your usual caffeinated drink to get all the energy that you need. The mushroom coffee with lion's mane is made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans and tastes just like coffee. All of their drinks are super easy to make. Just rip open their single-serve packets, add hot water, and voila, you have your drink. 
I am super pumped they created a special offer of 15% off for our storytellers. Head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea or use discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Thank you for supporting a brand that believes in the future of 88 cups of tea and have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.